Okay, so on to some media studies. Uh, what is Media Archaeology by Jesse Parika? Maybe UC. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce that, but I think I'm, I'm pretty confident with Parika. Uh, but before then, um, you know, chores. This can all be found on Spotify, iTunes, or Podbean, which I will put links in the description for. Uh, and also, Patreon account for anyone who's interested. Uh, because I'd really like to be able to cover the cost of the servers for the podcast, which is like $12 a month. So if you can, that'd be cool. If not, don't worry about it. And I feel bad asking, but got to do it. All right. So what is media archaeology? Now, this book kind of uh, falls into the camp of what is called new materialisms within media uh, media studies. And that is looking at the way in which... Um, you know, traditional question about materiality, that is dealing with things in a very, I will say in a very uh, brazen way or very vulgar way, material, that is the desk I'm currently touching or the pen I hold or anything like that, things that exist in the world, essentially. Now, for uh, media archaeologists and other kind of media studies folks, this begs some important questions. Where does media, or sorry, materiality end and things like software begin? Or are those two things the same? Because when we're dealing with software, we have to admit that we're dealing with something that is pretty well immaterial, but has a kind of material base with the hardware that kind of uh, subtends it. So with that kind of preface, we'll move into uh, Parika's preface, that is his introduction here, titled Cartographies of the Old and the new. And he begins this by giving the example of steampunk. So for those that aren't familiar, steampunk is a kind of aesthetic move, and it is political, uh, that tries to reimagine the kind of aesthetic flavor of the early 20th century, late 19th century, around industrialization. So this is realized in like dress to uh, video games to movies to anything like this that try to reimagine a past that has ostensibly gone away that has ostensibly disappeared so he uses this uses this as an example to imagine what media archaeology is trying to do that is for him it is trying to look at the past of media whatever kind of form they assume and that's one of the big points is that media for Perika and other thinkers in this field is a very broad term Right, We aren't just thinking about it in terms of the news or new technology with like, uh, you know, iPhones or Androids or anything like that. Really, media in this sense comes from or is used in the way that the kind of preeminent media theorist Harold Innes set it out to be. And that is really anything. Now, that might seem like a kind of a strange claim, like how could anything be media? Well, according to Harold Innes, Anything is media because anything in a given society or kind of cultural framework tells us a lot. And it tells us a lot about that society or that framework. So naturally that presents some problems because it's difficult if we take everything to be media and we want to look at everything in that way, then it's difficult for us to really craft out a steady identity for media, whether that identity be its kind of ontological character, like what is it? Uh, how it moves through time and space, or anything like that. So what Prika is trying to show here is that media archaeology does not shy away from those troublesome questions. 
And by asking those questions, what it tries to do is dissuade us from simply believing that media have has or have developed kind of teleologically, that is, uh, in a kind of sequential, clear way, or positively, that is, has been getting more efficient and better and all that, and instead asks us to rethink the way that we imagine that, to imagine lost media, to imagine media that hasn't been created yet, which, you know, I'm really setting up what the whole book is doing, but yeah. So one of the big figures that Perica locates in this field is Foucault. So Michel Foucault, the French uh, philosopher and historian, who doesn't really fit into a media studies framework all that smoothly. Any media studies people out there might be confused, but let me explain. Foucault never really talks about media per se. He does in the kind of Innis-like sense, that is, he talks about institutions and artifacts in a society and uses them to understand that society, but he never really talks about them as media. However, Perica doesn't think that, that there's nothing that can be taken from Foucault. Instead, Perica asks, what is that we can learn from Foucault's teachings, that is, his discourses around power, knowledge, uh, our obsession with history, what can those ideas tell us about even our fascination with media and how we obsessively try to, you know, dissect it and unpack it to find its history? So for Perica, he tries to understand the way that various media can give us a glimpse of a time past, or not so much past, but very much present, and also the kind of implications of that very process. So in this way, media archaeology for Perica has made headway in the, the discussions of modernity, of cinema, histories of the present, and alternative histories. And he goes through each of those specifically. So beginning with modernity, he says that it uh, essentially modernity had birthed or has birthed uh, new technology and new ways to essentially look at the past because it is in modernity that we see the emergence of museums. Uh, the second one here, uh, cinema. So cinema essentially opened up new discussions on the act of viewing. So this was especially true when it came to studies of voyeurism or studies of um, kind of spectacle, or in the case of gender, like the male gaze. And it also opened up discussions of the third one here, histories of the present, that is, it troubles the idea of the new, uh, revealing that to do history says more about ourselves or more about ourselves in the present than it actually does about the past. Because, and this was, in my mind, one of the great insights of Foucault, is that to do history was a very strange thing, where he says that, and this isn't verbatim, but there was a weird transition when uh, nature, we began to look at nature historically, and in that process, history itself became, became natural. Now, number four, how it opens up, uh, discussions of alternative histories, um, because it essentially reveals different perspectives on media or of media, which essentially troubles teleology. But in a proper kind of interdisciplinary way, Prika doesn't want to just limit this discussion to like kind of rigorous theoretical, uh, you know, discussion, sorry, uh, but instead is interested in the way that Media archaeology is happening not just in academia, 
and the rest of this book will come to show this, but in art and in practice and on the web and all these different places where people are constantly disrupting the flow of media in a very clear, smooth way, pointing to its limits and presenting new alternatives. And that puts us here into the first chapter, Media, Archaeology of the Senses, Audiovisual Effective and Algorithms. Or Audiovisual Effective Algorithms, sorry. So for Perika, he identifies at the beginning of this chapter that media archaeology was essentially birthed out of what was called New Film History, which essentially sought to understand, quote, the worlds of experience, memory, aesthetics, and politics. Now, anyone familiar with film history would know that that is essentially what, or film analysis or film studies, would know that that is what the, essentially the process is. But Prika adds to this to suggest that what makes media archaeology different is not only that it looks at more of a vast array, it's more eclectic, it moves beyond film. Uh, Perika is also interested in the way that media archaeology opens up a discussion about the effective dimension, that is the relationship between the user or the observer or the engager and the medium itself. And this kind of corresponds to an opening up of the senses in this discussion. That is how the senses have a kind of dynamic interplay with the medium. So the very way that we engage with new media has a, some kind of an effect on who we are as people. And this isn't uh, a totally outlandish claim. The way that we are engaging with our technology today is very different than it was 30 years ago. I mean, even 20 years ago, before the internet was like in everyone's homes, the thought of being able to access information from home was very different. So that opens up, a, I guess, a discussion about the way that even how we organize our lives and how our bodies interact with one another has been affected by these media. So the definition that he provides of affect is as follows, and it shouldn't be mixed up with emotion, because emotion implies more of a uh, kind of simply um, brain-like phenomenon, doesn't deal so much with the senses or the kind of bodily affect, that is how the, the body actually changes. Uh, so for him, it kind of rep it, affect represents the, quote, material stuff of multisensorial, kinesthetic, pre-conscious capacities and thresholds. So the recognition of these various thresholds uh, came about, according to Prika, uh, from 19th century physiology, experimental psychology, and a variety of scientific and experimental measures that made humans more aware about what was going on in their bodies in ways that, you know, we couldn't necessarily control, that we could only really identify, but that nevertheless made us aware of all the mechanisms going on underneath the skin, that is. So if we accept that media can give us a glimpse into how societies are formed, and then if we can accept that media alter the way that, and th this shouldn't make it seem as though there's kind of pre-mediated bodily condition, right, that, you know, can be essentially unearthed. We are always already affected by media. So if we can accept that media can give us a glimpse into a societal condition, and we can accept that media alter the way that people exist in the world at a bodily affective dimension, then therefore by analyzing media through this approach, this media 
archaeological approach, we can learn lots about not only society, but humans themselves. So for those familiar with uh, the film Ex Machina, there's a moment in it when the scientist is explaining that uh, he's kind of uncovered the code to the human brain. And he explains that this wasn't so much a, a discovery for us to learn what people were thinking, but it was a discovery to teach us how people were thinking, which is much more of an important question. Because if you just learn the content of what people think, it doesn't tell you very much about you know, the apparatuses that make that content possible, which is what I think exactly what Parika is getting at here in the hopes of media archaeology. But here we get a problem, and that is because, or the problem presents itself because humans aren't only affected by what they perceive, according to Parika, which is kind of an interesting claim. He adds that it is also all the things that kind of subtend what, it, what we perceive. That is, if I'm looking at a computer screen, there's a lot going underneath the hood that affects us in a very in very clear ways. So we think here of algorithms, we think of software, we think of codes that have effects on us that we aren't necessarily uh, privy to. So we, and this kind of opens up a discussion that will be built throughout the course of the book, but that one of the other tasks of media archaeology is to recognize these other kind of sub-perceptive uh, mechanisms that are operating so that we can have a better understanding of you know who we are so not just by looking at media as it presents itself to everyone but at the operations that exist underneath it which has a kind of relationship to uh, you know the political economists or even to the Marxist approach that wants to look at what makes any kind of development possible which I think is a noble task but in here we move on to Chapter 3, uh, imaginary media, that is, mapping weird objects. So this chapter begins with, um, I guess, the presentation of a certain artwork. And I regret that I, I'm going to give a bad description of it because I'm not an art historian or art critic or anything like that. Uh, and I definitely recommend you just look it up if you're on a computer. Uh, but it's called Parallel Image. And in this image, there's a kind of... Uh, computer and then a, a, a whole slew of wires coming out of the computer that are connected up to like a kind of template a kind of blank canvas of sorts and those wires create an image on the one side so it goes from kind of code to image so this might be understood as a kind of archaic example of uh, the kind of um, dissemination of media or the dissemination of code that essentially form media because, you know, it looks, it's cumbersome, it's a big thing, and it does a very single, it does a singular, simple operation that is essentially depict this one image. So this artwork for Parika prompts two questions, or two kind of observances. And the first one is, which technology uh, is considered worthy historically, and why? And then number two, it forces a new relation between art and the viewer. So to kind of open up the first a little bit, so that is which tech is considered worthy and why, Preka is trying to ask why that technology didn't like make it. Why was it essentially foreclosed? And I would kind of 
I feel like I have to preface this by saying that he's not overly clear about the mechanisms that actually go on, the kind of political or socioeconomic forces that make this possible. Throughout the course of the book, he's calling for that, but he's kind of leaving it for a later date, like someone else can take that up. For now, he's just essentially posing the questions. And then number two here, it forces new relation between art and the viewer, because it's not necessarily something that anyone really wants to see, and it troubles the idea of us having like a very smooth connection with our media, with our technology. Troubling, you know, technology being this amazing, life-altering, um, essentially way to make life easier or expedite everything. Now this is kind of an example of an imaginary media for Parika, because imaginary media are either media that have disappeared, so have once existed and disappeared, or have yet to exist. And they are being imagined in various zones, like in this case it's in an art gallery, but you know, we could just think of this in so many other different ways, you know, it's not reserved to these kind of specific zones like art galleries. So what this imaginary media provokes or it kind of allows is the development of the faculties to be able to recognize um, new forms of materiality, which is kind of necessary because as the question I raised earlier, as the problem I raised earlier with software, it would appear as though we don't at this moment have the kind of capacity to recognize software as material. So by developing our capacity for that through our imagination, we can open up a very interesting discussion about it. So in the case of imaginary media, a little bit more specifically, he wants to kind of apply a Foucauldian perspective to it. That is, he wants to ask what kind of mechanisms of power and control have determined what media gets made and what media has been forgotten. Now this relates more broadly to the idea of the archive found in the archaeology of knowledge, one of Foucault's texts. So thank God for us, uh, uh, Parika actually gives us a kind of quick synopsis of the key points in that book. But if you want more about it, I did an episode on here with a friend of mine uh, on the Archaeology of Knowledge, which you can go check out. It's available on all the other platforms too. But what Parika tells us about the Archaeology of Knowledge here, uh, it's through four points, and let me just begin by saying them. <laughs> Number one, archaeology is monumental. So that is to say that it does not look at what is behind a discourse and does not try to interpret it by referring to something outside the discourse. It is focused on the fact that something is a monument. Okay, number two, archaeology focuses on the specificity of the discourse and not on establishing a continuity and transition. Number three, archaeology works outside disciplines and normal boundaries of knowledge, such as oeuvres, 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 anyways, oeuvres. Number four, archaeology and its conception of the archives do not point to origins, secret, or obvious, but are in interested in rewriting practices and systematic description of a discourse object. So it's fairly clear, like trying to disrupt what, is, what are considered traditional modes of knowledge acquisition through history or anything like that, to disrupt that and to ask, why do we have this obsession? Why do we locate certain uh, kind of specific authority in specific domains? Why do we locate value in certain places? And by kind of doing this, we begin to expand our understanding of 
not only monuments as, as it's described through Foucault, but what counts as, you know, monuments in terms of media. Like what are media that we can actually learn stuff from? So by presenting new media that we can learn stuff from, we kind of re-enter new media onto the scene or media that has once been forgotten. So this allows us not only to imagine alternative pasts, that is pasts that have been forgotten, but it opens up the door for coming out of another thinker's kind of uh, lexicon, alternative histories for Perika. And that other thinker was uh, um, Zielinski. Zielinski? Zielinski? Which I, I hope I didn't mispronounce. And what a, one of the super impli uh, interesting implications of this is described by Perika in terms of the psychoanalytic dimension that he wants to kind of move away from to some extent because he doesn't just want to reduce this to what he calls a kind of Lacanian uh, triad between the real, the symbolic, and the imaginary. So we, we aren't thinking about the imaginary in that way. But he still says something rather interesting, and, he, and it goes like this. Just like the phonograph already proved to do, so hence, imaginary media of rays affecting the nerves, hallucinations, and delusions are a way of understanding the link to the new psychoanalytic understanding of the body. So he continues a little later on. In such a material version, then, the weird bodies of modernity, insane and otherworldly, are less hallucinations than part of the material logic of discourse networks. So it seems as though almost by looking at these imaginary media, we can get a glimpse at, you know, various strange ailments that seem to, um, seem to evade us. But unfortunately, that's an idea that he kind of throws out there but doesn't really expand upon, which I thought was super interesting. But still, I guess we, you know, we can chew on that for a while if we want. So I should, should say that throughout the course of this book, it, a lot of times it feels like a lit review. Like he's presenting a lot of different ideas or many different ideas from many different people, but I have avoided going into each one of their specific kind of outlooks because it would just take so long. Uh, and if, I'm sure anyone who's familiar with this channel, uh, you know, you're very much familiar with that fact that I'm, I try to give a more concise uh, presentation, not going, not diverging too far from the kind of original text. But on that note here, we'll propel ourselves into chapter four. That is media theory and new materialism. So when we think of uh, materialism in terms of computers, we might not initially think of software, right? We'd probably initially think of hardware, you know, the actual material that makes up the computer. So he says that hardware theory, so apparently that's a field or an approach, essentially wants to identify new forms of media that aren't considered as such, right? That aren't considered... Uh, media proper. So what do those look like? Well, uh, and it's here I'm actually going to present one of the key figures in this text, which I just said I wouldn't do, but I'm, there are a couple that I think are important to mention, and that is Kittler. So for, uh, this is Friedrich Kittler, I believe. Um, for Perika, Kittler essentially does two things. Number one, he, quote, looked at old media such as literature as media systems for transmitting, linking, and institutionalizing info information, uh, which relates to that idea from Harold Innes that I presented earlier. So relating to this hardware theory ID idea that is expanding the domain of possibility to new media. 
Uh, number two, he argued how power works in the age of technical media. So there he's taking from a Foucauldian uh, approach. So Kittler gives us an idea, the idea of discourse networks that Parika says is, um, can be found anywhere, right, in any kind of media. Uh, and discourse networks are essentially where power resides. So by looking at networks of discourse, you can it can be revealed, you know, who we whom who wields power against whom, and for whom is that power uh, essentially working for? So for Kittler, he kind of traces this the power, right? He says the power uh, can be found in what he calls uh, science and military contexts as the kind of zones through which these various media are controlled and these discourse networks to be better mobilized in the service of the few in the or in the service of few institutions. So media archaeology for Perica, taking coming back to his term, is the process by which this is recognized. So recognized through both software, as in the course of a kind of um, abstract immaterial discourse, and hardware. So new materialism does this in that it looks at software as though it, it itself is material, right? So algorithms, codes, software can be traced, can be seen, can be understood. Therefore, we shouldn't just disavow it. And then it's from there that he pushes us into chapter five, that is mapping noise and accidents. So with this chapter, he, he begins by looking at Walter Benjamin's Arcades Project, uh, where Perica says that Benjamin was essentially performing a kind of excavation of waste, rubble, and ruins. That is the waste, rubble, and ruins of modernity and the emergence of capitalism as a you know terrible force for for Benjamin. But actually, not that terrible because he you know he says capitalism will bring about the means for its own end. So in a very he's very Marxist in that way. So then this this chapter is interested in the way that virus spam and fraudsters work in relation to hardware and software and how they point to the limits of the possibilities of hardware and software and how noise a kind of feedback that is never can never be totally mitigated or removed kind of always shows the imperfectibility of software hardware technology but this noise is not reduced to uh, technology alone it can be found in the body so in the case of the gramophone, it was found that uh, it picked up not only the meaning inherent in human speech, but just as effectively the whispers, the noises of the body, the extras of communication, so to speak, that come with every opening of the mouth, which as soon as you, you're you privy to listening to me talk, you know, you hear all the, um, you know, noises that accompany any discussion, be it other noises from my mouth that I'm not uh, purposefully making, noises from my annoyingly squeaky chair or the pen that's probably flicking around in my hand all of these things you become aware of and as soon as you become aware of it then you know you can't really turn them off then they kind of take over the show so or my elbow hitting against the desk they kind of take over the show now no matter how much i try to get rid of that they'll always be there to some extent because the case of the mouth is really the best one whenever i open my lips like there's always that kind of residual sound, which is so annoying. And even myself, when I've been made aware of it, I hate it so much. But yeah, sorry, I digress. 
But to really hit the point home, Perica suggests that this extends much further than the body itself, or media, suggesting that uh, stochastic processes and Brownian random motion at the molecular level suggested that the universe consisted primarily of processes that were unstable, noisy. So it seems like it's unavoidable. So what does it tell us? Evidently not a whole lot in and of itself, but the response to it was very interesting. So this was uh, this moves us into the idea of cybernetics. So cybernetics emerging uh, in the kind of early 20th century, but has its roots back way to the Greeks, where the term cyber, I think, comes from um, the name of a person that steered a ship or rode a boat, like controlled the the oar uh, or the steering column or whatever the God, there's a word, but it's evading me. Um, essentially the controller of something. So cybernetics kind of sought to get o do away with the noise, right? So when we think of cybernetics, for those familiar with that whole field, we might think of the Macy Conference in the 50s uh, with some key figures like Norbert Wiener or Newman or um, Alan Kay even as a... Uh, all these kinds of figures that were interested in the kind of interaction between humans and machines, which opened up a number of interesting questions about what it means to be a human. Uh, but to kind of bar those for now, human and machines would come together to move towards a kind of perfectibility. Now that's specific here to Norbert Wiener. So as Perika writes, Cybernetics and its attempt to provide solutions for controlling noise was inherently tied to the idea of noise as disorganization. Wiener's early interest in Brownian movement also suggests how cybernetics can be characterized as an archival task of inclusion via exclusion. So much of cybernetics was based on the realization that the universe is probabilistic and only metastable. There is no ultimate possibility of getting rid of the intervening effects of noise, as it is a basic feature of the physical world, but there are always ways to examine, map, and constrain that noise. So the term noise then, uh, Preka uses it to go beyond just noise as it's been described so far, to think of any kind of disruption itself as noise. So he then begins to think about um, the telegraph or the sending of information across airwaves that was open to interception, which was a big problem, right, in World War II when, uh, you know, you could send a message out and it could very well be intercepted by your enemy that could do God knows what they want with it. So the telegraph was meant to kind of uh, dissuade that possibility because, it, you know, it's essentially wireless, like these are radio signals flying through the air. But then it was quickly found out that, you know, you just tune into the right frequency and you can catch that information. So as things became more wireless, what may, maybe at one point someone thought would be a way to kind of reduce noise, uh, actually opened up the door for more noise because then people who didn't actually have, you know, the kind of knowledge that came with the kind of military education or higher academic understanding, these people, anyone could kind of hop on with like a home radio or anything like that onto these frequencies and essentially acquire information or just clog up the airwaves with their own crap that, you know, made it so it was that much more difficult to have a clean, noise-free channel. 
which was a good thing because it opened up the possibility for more people in a kind of democratic way to be able to engage on these airwaves and how it wasn't just, you know, exclusively for those people that had the authority. So then in this case, noise, because noise was kind of the sound of common people, of the regular people using these airwaves, they it allowed a kind of new perspective or new perspective to emerge so that it wasn't just, you know, those people in authority that could say what they wanted to say. Now, as far as the study of media goes, this opens up a kind of radical potential because as long as people have been doing media studies that it goes back beyond like earlier than the 19th century, even, you know, up till now, most of the time these things were being written, that, that is the things being studied, written by the people that had power, people that had authority, people that can control or had monopolies over the production of knowledge, to use in term, uh, one of Harold Innes's terms. So it was always biased as to what we would actually see, right? Whereas now the kind of noise we are presented with opens up kind of possibility because this noise is now being spoken by the average person, so to speak. And it's from there we propel into chapter six, that is archive dynamics, software culture, and digital heritage. So the archive traditionally was a kind of storage point for culture, right? It stored culture, and it was through that that we could actually get a glimpse into that culture. But today, the archive is kind of difficult to see because is Facebook an archive? Is it the software that portends it, that subtends it? Is it Twitter? Is it the cell phone? What is an archive? I don't know if anyone's written that text yet, Another, like a nice little 10-page thing, what is an archive, to uh, you know, blow the world of archive studies apart, but if maybe it's written, I don't know, I haven't Googled it. But. Because software and the hardware that you know, supposedly underwrites it serve as bad archives because they're so ephemeral, right? They, they disappear all the time. That is more you know, peculiar to uh, software than it is hardware. But nevertheless, and Parika goes into a whole, has a whole thing about how, you know, what is considered, I guess, traditional art, like an actual piece of work of art, is always has to be like renewed and rejuvenated and uh, revitalized. And there's another word, um, has to be upkept in order so that it doesn't completely deteriorate. There's another word, but I'm stupid. Um, so even hardware goes through this kind of process, but because most of what we do on a computer or phone or anything is in relation to the software, then that is more of a place that we could should expect to see the archive, but it's always disappearing. So where does that really leave us for recognizing it as an archive? Well, to kind of understand this, he then turns to uh, a thinker by the name of Wendy Chun, who I happen to like a lot, and I've been meaning to do her book on here, one of her books, Software and memory on here for a while, but I just haven't gotten to it, uh, where Chun gives the explanation that software kind of earns its endurance or it earns its kind of uh, longevity precisely through its ephemerality, precisely through the fact that it is always fleeting because it never just disappears. It is always followed with a kind of revitalization, like a phoenix, right? And it is by virtue of that that it almost sets itself up to go on for a very, very, very long time because it kind of built in into its very logic is its own collapse. Whereas other forms of media, if they collapse, that's it. 
So this, and I've written some of my, you know, peer-reviewed work is about this, like locating this notion of software with capitalism, because capitalism is a very effective system that, according to Marx, is one that, you know, uh, continuously tries to revitalize itself and actually makes use of various failures, various crises to propel itself forward. So I see a similarity here in the way that software allows that. And it is through that that it can actually seem to last for a long time, like an archive. But when we talk about it in this way, like, I don't mean it like, oh, when a tweet is deleted, you know, there's always one out there to replace it. I mean this in the way that whenever you click a video to play, you are simultaneously killing that video as well as, you know, revitalizing it. Because it's meant to be played and it's being meant to be played. It's meant to kind of have a self-destructive uh, component to it, but that is always being revitalized by its being played over and over and over again. So the archive then is kind of focused on software underneath the appearance level, what Perika calls the constellation of material information, which can be traced to a kind of hardware type base, but that itself is also open to deterioration. So then he gives the example of what's called Fundus, which is a museum archive uh, or, or kind of display that just displays, and you should look it up, a bunch of old kind of technology on shelves and stuff. And the point of this is to demonstrate, you know, how much technology has changed and developed and altered and how it hasn't had a very smooth, clear, linear uh, history. But to this, I have a very, I have a criticism. Or it's not so much a criticism, but I feel like it's something that Parika should consider. Where it feels like to me, what those, um, I guess, art exhibits are doing is more than just kind of pointing to the limits of our understanding of um, hardware or software for that matter. But they also kind of make us feel good about ourselves because they always position these things in the kind of past because that is exactly what the function of a kind of museum-like space is, is to put these things in the past, which makes us think that we are always already in the superior moment. Because if there was something that was actually quote-unquote superior, we would expect it wouldn't be in the art exhibit, it would be with us. So it kind of serves um, a kind of self-fulfilling function in that it maintains the position of those obsolescent media, hardware, in that space, while affirming why things exist out in, you know, the popular mediascape. But yeah, that's just my, my thing. Uh, anyways, from there, on to chapter seven, that is practicing media archaeology, creating or creative methodol methodologies for remediation. So this chapter, you know, I was kind of fighting with myself as to how I should uh, talk about it because it just it just presents a lot of examples really but there are some key points that I'm going to bring up and I'm only going to make reference to one or two uh, kind of art pieces that Preka mentions because you know if you're on listening to this as a podcast or you don't have the uh, opportunity to like look it up it, it'll be alienating so I'm gonna bar that and just kind of hope you know you'll read it at some point or you'll get the sense of what I'm talking about just through words alone. So what media archaeology is meant to do? 
this is a kind of a reiteration of what's already been said, is to essentially critique media by creating media. That, that That's media archaeological art, I should say, which serves the purpose of challenging the linearity, the linear narrative of technology. So there are six fundamental ways, according to Parika, for us to recognize what art is media archaeology, media archaeological art. And they go as follows. So number one, uh, artistic works that visually engage with historical themes is one way to do it. So like the example of steampunk that the book began with or any kind of like lost or time that's passed. Number two, invoking alternative histories, which are able to offer critical insights into the assumed natural state of digitality, whether technological or social, through the art piece that goes against the grain in terms of the materials it uses or the narratives of use. So the, the ones that, you know, trouble the idea that the tech we have or is the only way we could have developed them uh, or that, you know, we've naturalized in this case the digital as, you know, the form of tech. Uh, number three here, art of or from obsolescence, that is pieces and practices that use obsolescent materials and solutions to engage with emerging media cultures or just investigate the potentials in reusing and hacking electronic media. So for example, let's say you were to connect uh, an iPhone up to an old like Commodore 64 monitor so you could do everything you were doing on the iPhone to this you wouldn't probably wouldn't be able to do that but let's take an old kind of monitor that you know would it support this possibility like Windows 98 monitor or something to a like an iPhone 10 or whatever they're up to now plug in plug it in so that through that monitor you are able to do everything you want on the phone right a kind of play on the on the phone itself where you could say well this does the exact same thing and you just lose the portability but anyways yeah so number four uh, if it invokes imaginary media that are constructed and not just imagined, devices that are dead or were never built, being reconstructed and reemployed for the curiosity value, but also to investigate the nature of progress, change, and the novelty-obsessed technological culture that is still, however, embedded in planned obsolescence. So planned obsolescence being, you know, having a very clear affinity with late capitalism when, you know, Shoes are designed to die in three years so that you go out and buy more. And this isn't necessarily like plotted out by people. You know, you if you buy shitty resources at the lowest possible cost, of course, it will only last a short amount of time. And then your users will have to, or your consumers will have to go back and buy more. Now, number five, media archaeological art that draws from concrete archives. In other words, artistic practice informed by archival work and historical materials. A direct way of working like a historian, but for artistic ends. And then number six here, media archaeological art methods that dig not only into the past, but also include the machine and address the present, but technically archaeological, buried conditions of our media culture. So fair enough, I think it's pretty self-explanatory. So then again, to kind of reiterate, media archaeology is interested in material, software as material, hardware as material, in some cases culture as material, and that through this it disturbs temporality, right? Or it opens up questions of temporality, like whose history gets told? How is that history told in a linear way? Why is it told in such a linear way? 
you know, whose history are we forgetting in this process, and so on and so forth. And then finally here, we move into chapter 8, which is just the conclusion, which is very much uh, a rehashing of what was discussed. Um, but there's one point that I want to want to elaborate on, or I should say the title of the chapter, that is Media Archaeology in Digital Culture. And the point that I want to emphasize here is how is when he actually talks about new materialities, which is kind of the key field that this belongs to. And that's on page here, sorry, should have had it queued, where we get three or four, uh, three materialities, and they are as follows. So we get the materialities of cultural practice, that is of human activity as embedded in both cognitive and effective apperceptions, appreciations and investments, but also embodied phenomenological accounts of what we do when we invent use and adapt media technologies. So that was discussed at the very beginning. We're dealing with the effective dimension. And Black Mirror serves as a really fantastic example of that for anyone that's familiar with that show. Uh, now number two here, we have materialities of material, which he says sounds like a tautology or kind of, you know, solipsistic phrase, uh, but that points to how we think of the constitutive non-humans that also, to riff off Bruno Latour, are part of what we call the social. So media history is a long story of experimenting with different materials from glass plates to chemicals, from selenium to coltan, what is more, such materials have their after effects, nowadays most visible in the amount of e-waste we are leaving behind from our electronic culture. So, you know, e-waste or other kind of, you know, the landfill in the I don't know if it was found. I think it was the landfill in New Mexico or somewhere of all the ET, you know, NES. I think it was NES, whatever, whatever it was, games uh, that says, says a lot. Like this material says a lot about our culture, like culture of pure waste. Like Thorstein Veblen, the early 20th century uh, sociologist type, sociologist, thinker, philosopher, uh, you know, really predicted this, you know, with the growing of wealth, we will waste much more. And it is through this waste that we actually affirm our wealth. Uh, and then number three, we have materialities of technologies, which is media theoretical accounts such as Kittler's that have been instrumental in pushing us to uh, media specific analyses. So this has meant digging into how technologies work and finding structures of power through a technological analysis. So media archaeology is, for theorists such as Ernst, reverse engineering. So looking back at, at um, looking back to culture through these media. And that, for the most part, I think gets at the essence of this book. I think I might have gone through it pretty quickly, but um, it's, it's a smooth read. It's like it serves a pedagogical function, like for anyone that has read it each chapter has a little summary at the end which is nice uh but you know hardcore purists out there would be like no that just, you can't do that because then you're gonna lose the essence but it's great because we don't all have time to go and read like full books like i do and that's why i do this but yeah if you uh liked what you heard here you know tell me why i'd like to hear it uh, if you didn't like what i did here you know i'd like to know why